0: Welcome to The Tech That Connects Us, a podcast dedicated to the stories of leaders in the technology industries that bring us closer together, specifically content and media, satellite and news space, connectivity and cybersecurity. Your hosts are me, John Clifton, Laurie Scott and Will Trenchard, the founders of Nuco, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm focused on these exact industries. We love being a part of them and we're excited to share these stories with you. Welcome to The Tech That
1: Connects Us. Your host today is myself, Laurie Scott, co-founder and director here of NUCO, alongside my colleague, Andrew Ball. And we're delighted to be joined today by Gary Cowan, CEO of Cislunar Industries, an exciting new space company working at the forefront of the orbital debris removal and in in space manufacturing. Gary had a uh, checkered career, um, very fascinating. Um, Started his career by being a co-founder of Nightrinders, Night Riders, a startup providing on-demand drivers aimed at reduced drink driving before then working for a number of senior financial roles. He's now re-enjoined the world of entrepreneurship um, coupling that of his experience of founding and building companies which he loves. He has a massive passion for space um, and very excited to tackle the most important space related issues that exist today. Welcome to the show Gary, wonderful to have you and really appreciate you joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, like you said, I'm I'm Gary Cowan, co-founder and
1: CEO of Systems Industries, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to have the conversation today. Brilliant, fantastic. So, Gary, what we like to do is go back right from the beginning, um, and it's just fascinating to sort of hear your hear your journey, really. Um, so, to get the story started, um, how and why um, did you end up into the space industry? <laughs> so
2: you want to go back to the beginning in my my own personal background for for that uh, that journey? Is that what you're yes, talking about? Yeah, yeah, yes. Please. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I've I've since I was very young, I had a I've had a passion for space and been intrigued by the idea of you know going to space. Always been um, you know, inspired by science fiction, like like many people are, especially when they're young. And uh, you know, I, I my earliest memory of like expressing that interest, I remember when I was. In my early teens, or maybe like age of ten or twelve, somewhere around that age age range, um, drawing a like taping together pieces of graph paper and and drawing out this like moon base with all the different buildings and things. I, I must have seen something in, in popular science or something like that. Because I, I used to save every popular science that I got when I was a kid. But <laughs> so you know that to like give you a little idea of you know what kind of kid I was. But um, you know, I was fascinated enough by it to sort of dive in at that point and kind of sparked that. That thought process of what is possible, right? And that that kind of moved along through my my uh, adolescence and into into college. And I originally attended the uh, uh, the Air Force Academy. Um, and I, when I was at the Air Force Academy here, I uh, I was enrolled in astronautical engineering. And I had this whole. Path, I'm, I'm sure I'm certainly not the only cadet that had this thought. <laughs> But I had this path mapped out. I would I would do astronautical engineering. I'd become uh, a, a pilot, and then a test pilot, and then an astronaut. Right?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <That's> <laughs>
2: very easy. It turned out that, um, you know, I wasn't really um, the right fit for the military lifestyle. So I was there for about two years and, and two months. And right before I was uh, committed to stay, I decided that, yeah, this isn't for me. And I, I left. Um, and uh Left to pursue all the other possibilities I could, I could get into, and went to CU Boulder and went down a different sort of path. Once I was at uh, at CU, um, yeah. going on entrepreneurial, you know, finance business path, I ended up uh, getting a degree in economics and and, uh, and business, and then um, started a company right out of college, as you mentioned earlier, called Night Riders. You know, unrelated, of course, to the space industry, but um, we Come found. On. We found that we we would go out to the bars and would need our car at home in the morning and, and it wasn't there and that was a pain in the butt. So we tried to create a company to solve that problem um, where we would go out and pick people up in their own cars and drive them home. And we had these mini motorcycles that would fit in the trunk and that's how we would get our drivers back. Anyway, did that for about five years or so, uh, four or five years, um, raised some money, went through the sort of the whole entrepreneur life cycle. Except yeah. for making a profit and then, you know, had to close it down. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that, that happens, right? Um, yeah. Spend the next, geez, like, I guess, let's see, that was 2005, um, I guess, 12 years in the finance industry uh, or, well, in different ask finance roles, as you say. Yeah. Um, you know, I did some consulting. I was doing corporate finance, like doing like budgeting and that sort of thing, and uh, did spend some time as an, as an asset manager getting you know, doing portfolio management and all that kind of stuff. At the mm-hmm. end of my, my finance uh, career, I was a director of finance at a software company here in Denver, and I just had this like burning desire in my body that was like, you've got to get back to the space thing. And I had previously, throughout that process, been looking for ways to get into the space career. And I just didn't want to go into like a big space prime into a finance role there, which is sort of the most natural thing to do, yeah. um, because it would be just the same thing I was doing already, except in another company that was involved in space. And I it just didn't seem like it, that would really, really tick the box. Um, and at the same time, I found out about about the uh, International Space University. So I started trying to find out, do I have to go back to school? To get an engineering degree to get into one of these space roles because I almost did that. I almost went all the way back to the beginning and started over. Basically, my wife was like, "You're nuts!" You know, you're going (laughs) to go. You're a director of finance. You're getting paid a director salary. You're going to go back to the beginning. I mean, if you really want to do it, go ahead. But um, anyway, (laughs) luckily I I found out about ISU, and you know, I don't know if you guys know about ISU, but they they sort of have this broad education for for the space sector. It's been around for thirty years or so. Um, and, you know, they they do this, um, they do a master's program, but they also do a nine-week seminar that travels from city to city to city. And uh, the year I did it, it was in Cork, Ireland in 2017. Um, never been to Ireland, so that was amazing. Uh, but they give you this great, like, education that goes from, you know, like, art in space all the way to rocket propulsion engineering, you know, and business and Everything in between, basically, it's so a really broad scope, you know, yeah. mile wide and foot deep, right, for the space sector. And so I saw that as um, a path for me to get into the space sector. And while I was, you know, approaching this, this, and I, I mean, at the same time, it was sort of inspired. All this stuff is I was watching SpaceX, you know, get all the success up to that point. I saw these Space Industries and Planetary Resources sort of. Um, you know, blazing the trail, making a, a reality or something that you could say would be a reality of asteroid mining, and I just thought like it's happening now. I got to get in on this now before I miss this new wave,
1: mm-hmm. and,
2: uh, and so I went to ISU. Um, I quit my job as a director of finance at uh, at, at the software company because I didn't want to just be lured back into that old job. And I had this intention to go to ISU, find some co-founders, um, and start a space company. And, you know, over the previous year or so, I sort of come to the conclusion that I didn't actually have to be an expert in space to go and do that, even though it seems sort of illogical to, to people who aren't, aren't, you know, thinking about it that way. But, yeah, I could find experts who knew this stuff. And I had a vision for where I wanted to be in this. And so I just said, let's go for it. Um, and, uh, and I figured I could always go back to get another director of finance job somewhere else. Right? So, so I, I made the leap um, and I went there with this intention to find a co-founders uh, and figure out what that company was going to be. I knew that I wanted to be out on the frontier of, of you know, the, the, the development of space, the expansion of humanity beyond Earth
0: to make that an actual
2: reality. And uh, yeah, while I was there, you know, I found a couple other people who wanted to do something like this. They liked the idea of being out on that edge of of, uh, of technology for space. And uh, we just got up in front of a whiteboard one day, you know, after like halfway through the program and said, let's figure this out, and I mapped out the value chain from, you know, asteroid mining to lunar mining to like mm-hmm. in-space manufacturing and said, okay, we got these pieces kind of covered. Um, you know, what's missing. And in the middle of that value chain, you know, there's this, you gotta take the materials and process it into something so you can use it for the manufacturing. And we really didn't see anyone focusing as that as the purpose of the company. Um, and so we saw this could be a place for us to, to do this. And then at the same time, I became really for the first time uh, aware of how much space debris is up there. And we sort of thought like, hey, shouldn't somebody be mining the space debris field? It's already right here. You know, we could use that. And then that would sort of take care of that problem as well. And also make materials for in-space manufacturing. And that that's kind of the genesis of, of Tisler Industries. You know, it was in in the ISU Space Studies Program in 2017. And that was my way of getting into the sector. That's how Tisler Industries was born. And we came out of that and just started going for it. Brilliant. So you've a um,
1: slight curveball. Um, obviously slight curveball from from where you ended up with the final space, but you've come full circle um, yeah. and you're living the dream. And um fantastic. That's that's what I love about these podcasts. It's really to hear the journey and it's always like um so different to what you would imagine like you said everybody's got the vision of being the astronaut working (laughs) themselves up and it doesn't happen but then they come come full circle into into their passion brilliant okay well um, i'm going to hand you over now
0: to um andy who's going to continue talking about the past brilliant thanks laurie um so gary look you've obviously mentioned and laurie's mentioned that you know you've had a Pretty varied career. You haven't always been in the space industry, um, right. but you know you you can tell from the way that you talk about this that you've obviously you know got a real passion for space. So I imagine you you know all through your sort of finance career, you were probably kind of dipping your toe into the water of of you know the space industry and keeping an eye on what was going on. Um, but we're kind of really keen to hear that, you know, were there any sort of individuals within that space community that you have always sort of inspired you? And I suppose that you kind of kept your eyes on all the way through your finance career and thought, yeah, you know, that they, they sort of emulate, you know, uh, they are the space industry and I'd love to emulate them.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think um, there's, there's two people that pop out and, you know. The, the more obvious one that, that no one will be surprised by is what I watching Elon Musk create SpaceX and sort of yeah. break that ground yeah. Yeah. for for entrepreneurial space and show that an outsider could come in, um, you know, like where people didn't really think it was possible to do that. And then do what people literally said was practically <laughs> impossible, which is land an orbital rocket on its tail, um, which is now so commonplace that people don't even pay attention to them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so ma- making things like that seem, you know, boring is kind of amazing. Right? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, the story behind how many moments where that could have failed um, is, is kind of amazing to, 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 to read about and listen to. And, um, and you know, I guess from look, looking at Elon, some of the stuff that, that I've been um, intrigued by or inspired by in, in his way of thinking is is this idea of going back to first principles so as an outsider, it kind of makes it more accessible to say, hey, I can go into this complicated you know, space sector. I might not be a physicist or, or, you know, some sort of scientist by training, but, you know, I can think about things from a basic level and, and break it down to like, OK, well, if we start from the beginning, you know, what should be possible? Right. And there's a lot of if you go with conventional wisdom, um, there's a lot of uh, like people who might say, oh, that idea won't work because we tried it 10 years ago or whatever. There's there's always some sort of like conventional wisdom that says something won't work. But the first principles concept kind of breaks through all that. And you can start at the beginning and say, well, it should work. And this is why. And then you can try to figure out how to, how to do that. So that, that kind of inspired me, um, both watching that happen, watching his company make make progress and, uh, and sort of then learning about his way of thinking kind of helped me to see that yeah, there's a way to come at this that can break some of the rules that, that people have. Um, the other person that, that really made an impact and was a, actually kind of a, a turning point in, in my life was Peter Diamandis, who was the found, one of the founders of um, International Space University. Uh, he wrote a book, Bold, uh, I think it was published in 2015. And it, this was like right at the right moment in my life when when this book came out, because I was kind of in my finance career, I was like, ah, this is really getting kind of boring. You know, I, I was pretty good at <laughs> doing spreadsheets and all that stuff, right? But but it was, I would, I'd find myself spending like 30% of my brain on my job and the rest of it is out there like trying to think about so, some way to get out of this situation. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and so I, that book came along and it, it really inspired me to think sort of in a way that was more expansive uh, and more uh, exponential and sort of breaking through some of the um, I guess my my preconceived notions that I couldn't get into the space sector without going back to become an engineer because those were the only jobs that I saw on the job boards for space companies and I don't know just sort of broke through all that stuff helped me sort of also think that like coming in as an outsider as a non-expert could actually be something of an asset because yeah. I'm not encumbered by conventional thinking you need the experts of course to be part of your team as well but but you know it helped me to Take a more visionary approach and 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 be able to come up with big ideas and just come in from the side and and have different ways of approaching it or come back to old ways of approaching it that should be tried again. Um, So yeah, he he's listening to that book in 2016 was uh, really got my brain churning and that's how I then found out about ISU and that's what gave me that breakthrough opportunity to you know get into the space sector. ISU was then my what for me um, made me feel like I, I deserve to have a seat at the table because I've kind of gone through this process and had this alumni network that would support me. Um, so the, I, I think those two have been some of the most influential people in in my thinking. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, Peter Peter Diamandis was also one of the creators of, of uh, Planetary Resources. So that you know, that, that also feeds into part of my inspiration. I was watching those companies break this ground and it just told me, like, now's the time this thing is becoming real. I mean, even if those, those companies aren't really doing that anymore, they still laid that foundation, right?
0: So. I mean, it, it sounds as though kind of discovering that book was almost serendipitous. You know, it yeah. was the right thing at the right time for the right person. Um, and who knows, you know, had you not discovered that book, we might not be sat here today. So. Uh. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> And so obviously with, with CisLuna, you know, you guys are looking to, to, to really kind of tackle one of the, you know, the, the biggest problems that the space industry, you know, is currently facing, um, clearing up space debris, on orbit servicing, on orbit manufacturing, creation of propulsion, you know, in, in space. And of course, you know, trying to avoid that Kessler effect is, it really is the, the hot topic, um, mm-hmm. but it hasn't always been that way. Um and, you know, I, while I'm in the space industry as a recruiter, I kind of feel myself as, a, you know, an insider, but an outsider as well. Um, and, and I've always questioned, you know, why has it taken us so long to start tackling this problem? Um, now, I suppose you've seen it from the other side, from inside looking out. Why do you think it is that we're only starting to look at uh, tackling this problem now?
2: I mean, it's a, it's, it's really a classic tragedy of the commons kind of situation. It's a bit like, you know, all of a sudden looking out into the ocean and noticing, holy crap, there's a, there's a pile of plastic that's the size of Texas, you know, floating out there. So, um, you know, we used to think the ocean was big. We could just dump our trash there, but, you know, (laughs) come, come and find, oh, actually humans dump a lot of trash. So that's not really true. Well, people used to say space is big and it is like, there's a lot of volume in space, but. There's also a lot of really um, key lanes of traffic that things cluster around, which makes it not so big there, right? Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's the, the combination of space is big, so we can throw stuff out there, What what's it gonna run into um, to, with the idea that like, okay, well, in the beginning, maybe we didn't know how the best way to, we were, maybe we weren't able to deorbit upper stages after we did the launch. We just had to get the thing up there, right? Where it's sort of mm-hmm. a, a different imperative that was driving everything then. Um, and then, you know, we've got these rules in place to, to deorbit things within 25 years, but really like the proliferation of satellites has just really accelerated recently. And their growth rate was, yeah, it was gonna, it was gonna get to the point where it was dangerous, but you know, it was always this question: like, who's going to pay for it? Is it like, is what what private company has an, a reason to pay to send one rocket up to take down one satellite? It just seems very expensive, right? And that's kind of the paradigm that people were approaching this debris removal from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you could take down a few with one launch, but it just was always a very expensive proposition. And and that that reality. And, and remember, like, launch costs were also much higher. Have come down a lot recently. So it, it just seemed, I think, way too expensive. And we had other priorities and, and it wasn't urgent enough because no catastrophe had happened yet. Right. I mean, there have been plenty of close calls, yeah. a couple of collisions, uh, you know, that weren't like intentional. And, uh, and and so, yeah, it's probably seemed like we can wait. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> that's, people said that. I mean, people I've seen people even now argue on uh, on you know, LinkedIn, that uh, when people bring up stuff about space debris, this is actually less the case in the last couple of months, really. But I, I used to notice somebody would say, "Actually, it's not as bad as you say it is." You know, you're you're kind of overstating the problem. Although now, in the last with the with the growth of, the, of especially the Starlink constellation, kind of showing the path for the mega constellations, yeah. Um, yeah. it's becoming becoming real. So I, yeah, I think it's it was those two things: the cost of doing it. The, the question of like, who's going to, who's going to, who should pay for this thing, you know, and, and no one really agreeing who that is. And that's the tragedy of the commons kind of problem in the classic economic sense. Um, and, and just the sense that we had time, basically, you know, that a lot of people like yeah. to just put, I mean, it's, I think it's kind of, unfortunately, kind of human nature. We watch this all the time right now with climate change and other things like people are apt to just put their head in the sand until until it's a real yeah. emergency so yeah <laughs> uh, and, and then it might be too late like you know so and this is another one of those kind of scenarios um but that's that's why i think it hasn't been done yet and, and that, that's sort of that's kind of what we're trying to change the paradigm with with this way of thinking but I'll, I'll pause there.
1: Okay. Because want to take it somewhere else, yeah. <laughs> another direction. <laughs> well, <laughs>
0: like, no, no, Dad. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, sort of, I suppose. Good that my next question is kind of a follow up question then to that. Um, and you've mentioned a couple of the, you know, the fundamental issues at the moment, especially with, you know, some of the mega constellations. We we're looking at, you know, solving so many problems just by putting more and more assets. In space. Um, and, you know, obviously Starlink and there are many others that are sort of coming beyond them, um, and not just the mega constellations, but also, uh, you know, new utilisation cases for space technology, you know, all of the Earth, you know, observation, the imaging, the reconnaissance that, that, that's happening up there as well. And so much of this is, of course, specifically happening in in, in Leo. Um yep. When we're sort of looking at at that, um, you know, what would you suggest that you know the industry of the future can kind of learn from from the industry of the past?
1: Hmm.
2: How could we learn from the industry of the past? Interesting. I mean, I, I, I think the, the the takeaway that I have, and this is sort of the conclusion I've drawn with space debris anyway, is that um you really don't have a sustainable solution if you're depending on government or some tax scheme to make it happen. I mean, there there's just so many Points of failure there, getting it set up in the first place, especially in an international situation like orbits, which cross every territory. You know, we're not talking about uh, one one country's domain that they can make the rules around. So, uh, I think there has to be a solution that that uses you know the profit incentive or some way of, of deriving economic value um, from the process that allows it to sustain itself and 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 actually. Not require outside funding. Once we get to that point, the space debris problem will take care of itself, and and that's, you know, in that in that way, uh, that's what we're suggesting for for space debris. This uh, we're really promoting a paradigm shift um, in in the way we think about space debris. And actually, I'm going to be talking later today uh, or commenting in a uh, listening session the White House is holding on on the um, their national orbital debris plan. We did this last week as well, so this is the second one of two. Um, and this is the point that I made the last one that you know we think that there's that we should be directing all of our our efforts and our way of approaching it to try to create an ecosystem where we can utilize all of the debris that's up there as a resource to build the the future of of low Earth orbit economy and beyond um, that we all want to see. We can build large. And we, there's a lot of projects that people have in mind for large structures like space-based solar power and you know large uh, space stations and things like that 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 we can use those materials for. And we spend a lot of energy getting them up there already. It's a real shame to just throw them in the dump of the atmosphere. And then again, who knows what this increasing quantity of deorbited materials will possibly do to the atmosphere. I've seen some theories around possible negative consequences to that. So um, you know, there is, because what we're seeing emerge right now and we think that this is not a 10 year thing. This is like a couple of years thing. Um, is all of the pieces of the puzzle for a a complete debris recycling ecosystem where you can go out with much lower cost spacecraft that are refuelable and capture every single piece of debris of satellite at end of life or existing debris, bring it back to a platform, recycle it, turn it into materials that can be used both as propellant to drive those spacecraft forward and as materials to build this future in space and accelerate that process. And in doing so, we, this whole problem shifts from a it's too expensive, who's gonna pay for it? We're never gonna have a cheap solution to how can we maximize the economic opportunity of this and create as many jobs and successful companies as possible? That's the shift we wanna make. And we think that it's totally possible now with, with lower launch costs and a whole host of technologies that are now reaching a level of maturity along that whole value chain that actually makes that possible. So that's, you know, that that I think is the solution. I mean, technology advancement and uh, finding a way for people to gain benefit from something is the best sustainable way to solve
0: some of these grand challenges. Definitely, definitely. Well, Gary, thank you very much for that. Um, Some really, really great insights. We've learned about your foray into the the specs industry, Um, you know, some of your inspirations and kind of your your view on the past. Nice segue then, bringing us kind of right up to the present. Um, So Laurie, over to you. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Um, And fascinating, by the way, Gary, I could listen to you all day. So
1: um, so keeping with the present, I mean, um, with the advent of the new space industry right now, we've seen a huge shift in the markets and the type of solutions that are now available, utilising space technology, which is fascinating. Um, What's your what's your current view on the market and where do you see it heading?
2: I mean, I I think that we're at the beginning of a new industrial revolution, actually, Uh, and, and I think that it's going to be driven by this activity in space. You know, this actually um, that 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 view of the future, where I, I think that you know we're it's literally to me it feels a bit like you know my only personal experience with something like this is when the internet sort of emerged in the '90s, right? So I was I was um, uh, let's see in, in 1990 I would I would have been 12 years old, so that that gives you some idea of how old I was when the internet was kind of emerging, right? I sort of remember the whole process. Too young to really take advantage of that that boom time, but but enough to watch it. Old enough to watch it, right? And I think that we are right at that moment where you know it's just starting. And people, some people who are visionaries see the potential. Most people don't. And um, and you know it, that there are going to be use cases and applications that that we can't even imagine uh, sitting here right now that people will use the capabilities that are the infrastructure that's being laid down right now for space. Um, in in the future, as costs come way down, you know, um, as as uh, uh, the kinds of infrastructure that's built up there to host other people's ideas starts to be built, um, it, it's going to enable lots of of new things. But you know that the market right now, I think, is is really in a boom time. We're seeing a lot of um, you know investment pouring into it from private sector. It's growing rapidly, very rapidly. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing increased interest from, from the government as well to support these things and uh, against the backdrop of, um, well, what is at least a new uh, competition in space amongst uh, amongst the space powers that are sort of, you know, kind of dividing amongst between like Russia and China and, and you know, the United States and our allies, you know, and um and this is sort of like the artemis accords versus the you know on the moon and and uh you know the the base that, that china and russia have s- signed an agreement to set up on the moon there's definitely a new race going on yeah uh, and you know it, it could seem kind of unfortunate in some ways you're like oh man are we going to do this all over again like the cold war and, and <laughs> you know, scare each other constantly until you know things kind of cool off um but in, in some ways, also, I think it could be a benefit as long as it stays, you know, peaceful competition will drive things forward much faster. And, and you know, nothing like a, a competition, a geopolitical competition to keep political attention focused on, you know, yeah, one yeah. target so that we can, instead of changing course every every administration, we can actually continue down one path. So I see that happening now. That is yeah. that plus the investment, plus the drop in launch costs, these big trends, are really driving for the space industry. And I think that there's gonna be, I mean, I, I i wouldn't know what number to put on it, but it's gonna be pretty massive growth, you know, job opportunities, and even people living and working in space, that's happening soon. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're already seeing space tourism actually happening. So- I was gonna <laughs> say that
1: it's coming. It's a matter of time, yeah. so it's coming, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Fascinating, and that's the thing. I mean, actually, I'm fascinated. Really, you've been a, a former finance guy, um, and you've touched on it. We've seen an explosion right now of these new startups, um, especially in the last few years. There's been a an, accre- an increasing amount of interest, um, a lot of investment out there, um, a lot of VCs that are. Pumping money in, um, which yeah. I think is brilliant, because I mean it, it drives the innovation. Um, there's more specs out there that, that right now than you can sort of shake a stick for. it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for, from your point of view, um, where do you see like the key things that are not currently being addressed by these companies that that there's an opportunity for?
2: Hmm. Um, I mean, there's it, it, so when I look at, it, I, I tend to have because we're so focused on trying to get our company set up, my my yeah. uh, my survey is often somewhat well, limited to my scope of, of of the world which is still not that limited I guess but you know uh, there there are companies working on on like all aspects of the value chain that we think is important uh, coming up I mean I see people I don't know there's I don't know if there's a single sector that I've thought like hmm. I wish somebody would work on this. I mean, there's there's you, generally people, somebody working on just about everything. And then there's some areas where we think, oh, there's an opportunity for us to do something that fits in with what we're working on. But uh, you know, if you're asking about like where where's the opportunity for growth and you know, sort of new businesses to come in. I mean, there's as this economy grows, we want multiple companies working in each sector. So it's not like there's only going to be one company that, that makes communication, uh, that makes robot arms. And then there's one company that, no, no, there's got to be many, many, many. That's how you build a real economy, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I think there's, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if we're looking out to the lunar environment. There's a whole bunch of stuff around building up that communications infrastructure and the power distribution. Really, all the infrastructure pieces are, are going to be critical out there. And then I guess after that, you know, once that's in place, you'll have the more, you know, service-based kind of um, economic opportunities that are are required once we have more people out out in space. um, Mm -hmm. And and we need to sort of layer on top of that. But yeah, I I don't know. There's not really a, a sector that's not being tackled, it seems like right now when I look at it, but
1: yeah and i think i think it's brilliant i mean i remember a few years back everybody was talking about sort of space debris and how could we clean up and until you realize um what's out there um it's you didn't people just sort of ignored it um but just now that you sort of come to come to fruition um you're involved it, it's just great to hear you talk so um I mean, I,
2: well, what, well, one one quick quick example I, I i just remembered for for that it sort of illustrates that point and I heard this actually on your podcast with, uh, with Dan Faber. He likes to make this point about how many uh, in-space transportation companies have sprung up. And, I, you know, like when they first started looking at Orbit Fab, it was six, I think is what he said. And now there's, I don't know what he said, 60 or 70 that have popped up. And I don't even know all those companies, but those are some of the companies <laughs> that we want to work with. So but that just gives you an idea. I mean, that, there's so many out there trying to do this stuff that pretty much every piece is covered in, in some yeah. way or And that doesn't mean people shouldn't try to do it a, a different way. I think they should.
1: Yeah. And I, what I like as well is is bringing in these entrepreneurs from outside the traditional industry the industry that have got ideas and, and can make this happen. And it's like, wow. Um, so brilliant. Well, that ties in nicely with the future. So, uh, Andrew, over to you.
0: Uh, cheers, Laurie. So look, obviously a lot of the talk in the industry and, you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times today, um, you know, the future is, is really focusing on. On, you know, first the moon and then of course Mars beyond that, um, talking about, you know, the first permanent off-world colonies, um, you know, talking about permanent outposts in space, you know, maybe even the first real jobs in space, not just you know, working in space, but physically there. Um, but obviously there's, you know, there's still a, a long way to go. Um, you know, in, in your opinion, what's the most important problem you know that needs to be solved in the near future to make sure that, you know we as a, as a as a as the human race are going to be successful off earth
2: <laughs> i mean i i think i think we need to create a robust uh in space economy in in cis space that that to me is is the like the foundational piece and that and that's not one problem that's many problems that need to be solved right but um you know i think we're we're Uh, Well, on the way to solving launch, Uh, you know, that's, there are a hundred, over a hundred companies trying to do their own launch vehicle, but we see SpaceX really driving the cost down there. Um, We've got many companies working on in-space transportation, uh, but if we can, all those pieces come together and we start to build that industrial layer in space, making things for space companies, so space to space business. Um, You know, once we get to that threshold and there will need to be some, you know, investment from the government as sort of an anchor customer and that sort of thing to make sure that these markets emerge. But uh, you know, I, I think that that's the next step. You build a robust economy in space, you can tackle space debris. You can build the foundation for a moon on, uh, uh, you know, a, a not just a small outpost on the moon, but like an actual like settlement that has, you know, hotels for tourists and the whole lot of it. Um, and then that lays the foundation for going out, out beyond and, you know, sort of, utilizing nuclear uh, propulsion technologies to increase the speed of travel, you know, interplanetary uh, distances and all that stuff. It, the foundation piece is building up this, this industrial economy in cis-lunar space, encouraging that to happen and sort of uh, trying to drive that forward. That, that to me is the, the next grand challenge. And that yeah. once yeah. we're there, we'll, we'll be an interplanetary species for sure
0: interesting and you know certainly it seems like we are we are getting there as you say there's a lot of you know a lot of different companies out there tackling all of these different problems um ever hopeful that that it happens in my lifetime let's uh let's wait and see i'm confident that it will and it seems like you are too which is which yeah. is really good exactly. um, <laughs> good and look, i have to say it was um you've mentioned it you know a, a couple of times that you know with with cislunar industries you're really looking at that um you know reuse recycling of you know of resources that are already on orbit um and i have to say it was really interesting to watch you know a, be it a short video um but the vo- video on your website of the formation of you know the first aluminium rods made out of simulated orbital debris you know this is taking it from you know an idea to okay here is here's the real use case which was fascinating to watch um really interested to hear any future developments that are happening at cisluna that that you can share with us right now you know obviously nothing um that you'll get in <laughs> trouble for sharing at this point but you know <laughs> what's what's next for cislunar
2: yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, happy to do that. So we just came off uh, a very successful phase one SBIR with NASA uh, back that finished up in November. And um, you mentioned the short video on our website. We'll be posting some more of that content soon. It always seems like the website gets the short shrift in this sort of thing. So familiar, <laughs> that but but uh, we did do a live demonstration in October um, with the, at the Colorado School of Mines where we cast a rod in a more developed uh, system than what you saw in that video. Um, And we did it with 150 people in the audience, uh, either online or in person at at Mines, and also with one of our partners in Australia called Newman Space that makes a propulsion system that uses metal rods as the propellant. So we were making those rods so that we could use them as propellant. And we showed the whole value chain from, we had Astroscale there, talking about how they're gonna capture debris. We had nanoracks there, talking about how they're gonna build platforms out of old upper stages, and then also their metal cutting technology, which we need. Um, and then we we showed our microspace foundry you know demonstration uh, where we made a rod and we had sent a rod to uh, to uh, Newman Space in Australia so that they could in the, in the next phase we cut over to them on a live video feed and they had in their acrylic uh, vacuum chamber their thruster and our rod in there and they showed it making propulsion so they've we, we've shown the whole value chain from capture to usage of uh, for, for for propulsion. The next stage for us is we have obviously filed or submitted a proposal for a phase two SBIR um, from NASA, building upon that work. Um, there's a, a new solicitation for the Space Force called Orbital Prime, which is focused on uh, debris removal mission as the use case to help build up all the industries that are needed for you know um, a commercial on-orbit servicing assembly manufacturing business OSAM industry. Um, so we're you know, certainly proposing to that. There's a number of other opportunities around that area. And from a technology perspective, um, in the last, I think I can share this, in the last um, couple months, we've taken the system that we demonstrated and uh, re-engineered pieces of it uh, with the with some of the advice that we get from our, our advisors at Colorado School of Mines. And our team has brought the power consumption down by something like two or three X um, to make the same amount of material. And we're shrinking down the electronics from something that was like a toaster oven size thing down to you know, the bulk of the electronics will be shrunken down to something like a credit card size. So this, we're already making really rapid progress on some of the key uh, you know, pieces of the puzzle. And uh, we're, our next step is to, um, well, we're, we're going through the funding process, both private and, uh, and you know, through, through government sources. Um, and when we get some of that in place, We're going to be building the team up. We're going to be hiring people. Um, You know, we've got some people, you know, targeted already that we want to bring on board. And the next phase is, you know, advancing that prototype to something that can do, um, you know, that would point towards our ultimate goal, which is to take these materials, whether they're from space debris or other sources, and be able to make a whole variety of things like wire for 3D printing, to roll out sheet metal in space, to make like tubes of base, basic metal products that you would see come out of a yeah, metal or something yeah. um, that we can then use both you know, to build stuff in orbit and also the same thing can be used on the moon. So we see a whole roadmap where we, we first start with debris as, as a path, and we we feed that into the in space manufacturing market. Um, you know we use the propellant as an early use case, and then we take this same technology to the moon. We use it on the moon to turn regolith the, you know, what's left over after you take out the oxygen, which people are doing to get oxygen for various reasons, um, is metal. And that metal can be reprocessed into these basic materials, which can be used to repair mining equipment and build bases and all this stuff. So it's sort of it stepwise builds up. And, you know, the beauty of our approach is that each system is small and modular. Uh, so it can be it can fit on a spacecraft all by itself. Like you could take a spacecraft, a de- removal spacecraft with one of these, and it can basically make its own propellant while it goes around eating up spacecraft and taking it out of orbit. But, but ultimately we want to see it all stay in orbit and use it, right? And then that just takes us up to, um, to you know, the moon and beyond. So that's sort of, uh, that's the path. We, we're on a rapid,
0: trajectory for building this technology and moving forward. Well, it it sounds as though you guys are making great strides. What's really, really good to hear as well is the, the partnerships that that are being created and, you know, almost kind of creating your own, you know, end-to-end value chain showing, This is how it's going to work. And, you know, that that really, really is exciting. So, well, look, Gary, thank you for sharing all things sort of past, present and future. Um, Now we move on to a topic that, you know, certainly very close to our hearts here at NUCO. And it's an issue that certainly we feel needs to be addressed in in the space industry. um, And that's diversity. So, So Laurie, back over to you.
1: Yeah, so Gary, I mean it's it's fascinating to hear how you got into the industry in the, the nine-week course. And I, I mean, I just want to sort of elaborate and get, get into that a little bit more. Um, having that opportunity when you don't have the engineering degree that maybe would be the the sort of natural progression to to, to come into space. Um When it comes to diversity, I know it's a a big topic that everybody's talking about um, and just really keen to get your opinion. So for you, I mean, any advice to other senior leaders in the industry on how we can address the diversity problem in the industry right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't I don't think uh, I don't really consider myself. To be, you know, experienced enough in the industry to give advice to senior leaders on how to solve this this challenging problem. The only thing I can say is that uh, we 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 as a company already recognize in ourselves that we already lack diversity in our team, and and we we see it. And I think that's the first step <laughs> is recognizing that it's the case, right? And then I think you have to take a conscious, uh, you know, effort to to make that not the case, and you know, look for opportunities to hire people from different backgrounds and. You know, different sexes, different races, and all that stuff to get that different aspects of of thought uh, and different angles of thinking about things into the process of creation. You know, so we we definitely are have talked about it. It's a it's a priority for us to as we build out the company beyond just the core co founders um, to make sure that that is a, a guiding principle. Um, and it's not just you know race and sex. It's also making. It, this is kind of difficult in, in in the American space industry, and unfortunately, but uh, I like to get perspectives from multiple countries and different parts of the world, and include them. You know, at, at International Space University, one of the beautiful things about it is they bring people from you know thirty different countries, including uh, rival countries, are, are there well now rival countries anyway, um, and it's it's great to see those cultural barriers break down and people collaborating cross culturally. Um, and getting those diversity of perspectives and opinions. And it just creates a much richer and more uh, robust solution to problems and a faster solution to problems. I think when we can do that, yeah. uh, it's difficult in the States because we have, you know, the whole requirements around, you know, export regulations and need for, um, you know, citizenship or or green card sort of thing. But but uh, we we have an international company already because our co-founding team is partly European. And so we're already sort of in that state of of thinking and yeah, we want to, Try to find ways to carry that forward. I don't know what advice to give to the rest of the industry, though, know,
1: except to try to make it a priority. You know, yeah, and well, I mean, you've 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 already given the advice. I mean, just to see your journey and stuff as well, and, and big up to sort of the ISU. I think, um, Andrew, we need to get our children sort of already ready to, to get it
0: get involved and registered. So, uh, uh, don't worry, I've been taking notes. I'm going to be pushing Otis in that direction whenever he's old enough. <laughs> so, don't worry about that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, thanks again,
1: Gary. So, um, well, now we're moving to the the sort of the fun side uh well that was fun anyway but more about <laughs> you really and getting people to know um maybe stuff that they wouldn't necessarily know about you from your background so Andrew over to you
0: yeah thanks Laurie um so yeah as Gary as Laurie said we've we've learned a bit about you already. Um, but I'm sure our, our listeners would like to learn, you know, a little bit more about about the man behind the, the, the business. Um, so we're a curious bunch. Uh, and one thing that we always like to ask is, look, what's your what would be your idea of a perfect weekend?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so perfect weekend for me is, uh, well, I love adventurous things. So for me, it's like, if I'm going to go do something new, um, you know, whether it's on a vacation or a weekend, uh, like that, that is always the, the best sort of thing for me to do and if i can take my weekend and i don't have to work i don't think there's anything carrying <laughs> over which unfortunately is rarely the case these days but um you know i can set everything aside we can go somewhere maybe go up to the mountains we're in colorado so going up to the mountains is a great way to escape for the weekend and uh you know with friends and family and uh, just be surrounded by people that i love and enjoy and go do something interesting and new that's my perfect weekend whether that's skiing or hiking or whatever other kind of adventurous activity we can carry on with. So and I have a I have an eight-year-old daughter, so I love to get her out and expose her to as many things as I can and sort of build that <laughs> adventurous ethos within her, you know.
0: And I guess it's sort of a slight aside question, but um as, as an entrepreneur and you know, co-founder of a business, how often do you get to enjoy those kind of weekends these days? Yeah. <laughs>
2: uh rarely (laughs) (laughs) i think honestly sometimes you know to actually really disconnect like that you have to go to somewhere where the cell phone doesn't work almost you to prevent yourself from being tempted and looking at something uh you know it's happened a couple times in the last year um but uh we do get up to the in, in the winter we do get up to the mountains to go skiing at least once a day every weekend pretty much and that is pretty well disconnected from from um work so
0: maybe uh, once a once
2: a week in the winter <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that's good enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent um so look that, andy, thank you very you much to, that
1: i was gonna say andy i want to get you to do the uh, the next bit as well because um i'm sure you've got some
0: questions you want to you ask gary <laughs> <laughs> well look oh, perfect so gary we're, we're straight into the quick fire round now um so these are uh, sort of 10 questions um no thinking about it first thing that comes to mind some of these are um, multiple choice questions some of them are a little bit more kind of open-ended um, okay. but uh, yeah try not to think too much about it and answer the first thing that comes into your mind um so look, i uh, <laughs> i have a feeling um i know what the answer is <laughs> going to be to this one um but beach holiday or mountain getaway <laughs> mm, mountain getaway i thought it probably was <laughs> <laughs> plane travel or train travel playing because i can go further okay Uh, a big night out or a quiet night in Mm, quiet night in usually what's your go-to karaoke song (laughs)
2: uh um what is it called uh oh dang it roadhouse
0: blues by the doors Ah, okay. I Interesting one. I have to say, I'm very surprised that we yet to have the answer my way to, to that one. Um, it's inevitably, it's going to happen sometime, but but not today. Um, movie or a book? Movie. Or does an audiobook count? Audiobook. Yep. 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 We'll, we'll let you have that one. Uh, Apple or Microsoft? Microsoft. Red, white or rosé? <laughs> uh not white I'll of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> okay kids are nice netflix or disney plus yeah well we'll take we'll take beer um netflix or disney plus ooh uh probably
2: disney plus these days because of the science fiction that's on there but they both have good stuff
0: uh you've been watching the mandalorian and and oh, Bob yeah i haven't seen so Bob that. Though. I just saw that it came out so it's on my list very good it's only just started I, yeah, very I was gonna say I'd, i would recommend it um uh, night owl or early bird no oh, definitely night owl and, uh, yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did. <laughs> last question um for for this this part of it and one we always like to ask our guests involved in the space industry um and i think i'm gonna know the answer to this one as well uh, but elon musk or jeff bezos musk he gets stuff done <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that was probably gonna be the answer <laughs> okay perfect well look, it was great to get a little bit more uh, kind of insight into into you so now look i'm gonna pass over to laurie for our final question of the day yeah, thanks, Andrew. Roadhouse Blue is a great song. So, um, okay, well, what, what we like to do
1: now, um, Gary, is we ask the same question all the time, but just fascinated to sort of get your your take on it, really. Um, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody that's actually entering the industry right now?
2: So that you mean like somebody who's coming out of college and entering the industry, that 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 sort of uh, scenario? Yeah,
1: yeah, that'd be great, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess... You know, I have the archetypal uh, winding path to get into the industry. So <laughs> I, I didn't follow that, that traditional thing. But I would say, you know, th- what I think is like, don't be too afraid to sort of deviate from what you're supposed to do. I think a lot of people go down this path and they've started down a certain path and they think I got to keep going down the path. And if it doesn't feel right, they just stick with it anyway. Um, I think you need to stay flexible, curious, and like, don't be afraid to try stuff new, change direction. People don't really look down upon that, you know, and at least not anymore for, for changing your path and looking for, um, for different ways to find what works for you and find your talent. I also would say that don't be afraid of the space industry because you don't have an engineering degree. I mean, there's we, we, one thing that ISU showed me is that uh, the space industry needs people from the entire swath of society. And the more we get out into space, the more we're gonna need all those different kinds of people, um, and every space company needs people across the spectrum of of skills. So you know, mm-hmm. I think anybody should see themselves as a potential candidate. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the other thing I would say is, I think it's been useful for me to say yes to as many interesting opportunities as I can. You know, <laughs> if, if something comes up and you think you can, you think you might be able to do it, and you're not sure how. Um, it's usually better just to say yes and try it <laughs> and see what happens. I've, never, I've been surprised at how things have come out of, you know, interactions that I didn't anticipate would, would necessarily lead anywhere. So um, yeah, that's, that's most of those things, I guess. Um, I guess just stay curious and, you know, keep following the things that interest you and um, you know, be open to talking to new people as often as you can and don't be afraid to do it
1: brilliant i think you've nailed it so um well gary i mean thanks so much for, for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure um really good luck for the future i don't think you need it i think it's very exciting um and yeah really really appreciate you joining us
0: yeah thanks for having me it's been, it's been fun thanks so much gary really appreciate it thank you for listening to our podcast If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.meuco-group.com. You've been listening to The Tech That Connects Us.